0: Hi, I'm David Crow, and this is episode 245 of The Infectious Myth. Email me at David.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com. That's Crow with an E. Join the discussion and like us at facebook.com theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Infectious Myth. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on prn.fm, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or other programs. You can listen to any of the last five episodes over the phone, by dialing the US number 701-719-0990 and following the instructions. PRN.FM has voicemail. Call 862-800-6805 and as well as a message or question for this show, leave your name and indicate that the question is for the infectious myth. If you dial either of these numbers, long distance charges may apply. I don't know your listener until I hear from you, so send me a message letting me know how you stay in touch with the show and what you like about it. If you include your mailing address, I'll send you a little thank you gift, one of the bookmarks I make by hand using my own photographs. I do really love to hear from my listeners, so don't be shy. You can make a one-time donation to the expenses of the show via PayPal using the email david.crow at theinfectiousmith.com, or commit to monthly donations at patreon.com or liberapay.com where we are also infectious myth, one word. We appreciate all our listeners, but if you want this show to continue to grow and improve, consider paying a small amount for the information you're gleaning, for the support you get for some of your non-mainstream ideas, and challenges to others. This is probably not the only independent media radio show, podcast, or YouTube channel that you follow. You know that it's impossible for independent media to go to most commercial sources for ad funding, and you probably don't want them sucking up to commercial interests, so it's up to you. I'm afraid. Donate to the Infectious Smith and other independent media. Even a dollar a month helps. If you'd like me to speak at a meeting of an organization you're a member of on any topic you think I have an interesting and worthwhile opinion on, I'd be happy to discuss this with you. I appreciate you commenting and suggesting guests. I appreciate your financial support as well. Thanks for listening and for recommending this show to your friends. It seems like everything is measured in this modern world. Your performance might be measured at work. Your kids might have multiple-choice exams to measure their knowledge. Medicine is full of numbers that are believed, even when we know they are flawed. Even the justice system assigns scores to people based on a computer's estimate of their likelihood to re-offend. So, when I heard that a local Calgary writer had published a book called Bad Data, I knew I had to interview him. And, if I can make a related movie recommendation, there's a similarly titled Thai movie bad genius that's surprisingly relevant. Don't worry, it has English subtitles. It's fun, gripping, and afterwards it has... and afterwards you'll realize it has deeper significance that's related to today's interview. So, let's get right to it. Peter Shrivers is an urban planner in my city of Calgary. Well, I guess it belongs to him as much as it belongs to me. He's the author of a new book titled Bad Data, and that's why we're talking today. And because we're, uh, we live in the same city, he's here in my studio. Welcome to the show, Peter. Well, thanks for having me. So you start your story, your book, with a story about ants. And mm-hmm. uh, you talk about how pheromones, which are you know, trace chemicals that ants can pick up, are information and they can follow them. But if they ever make a circle, then they go around and around until they drop dead that's right yeah, which okay. seems like a, a right. metaphor for being misled by by data yeah, by data so, that's and that's that's exactly
1: it it's it's the they call it the entomologists call it the ant mill but i like calling it the the death
0: spiral <laughs> <laughs> i think death spiral yeah metaphor. much better right yes so we're going to talk a lot about numbers and uh, how they're used and um at common core maybe Canadians don't know too much about this but Americans sure know yeah all about common core and uh, it's uh, you know it's a testing scheme and maybe you can explain a little bit more about that in a second but looking at it politically my feeling was in the old days conservatives were big into the 3 Rs test kids crank out you know kids that know the basics And so they were sort of protesting, but now it seems to be the progressives who were big into (laughs) common core. I don't know if you see it the same way. Yeah, I think
1: uh, testing is really interesting because uh, testing in schools, standardized tests, have kind of, they kind of cross the political spectrum in that both conservatives and liberals love them and hate them. Um, Yeah. in for different reasons, right? Um, I think sometimes progressives don't like them because they feel like it is you know a standardization and they want to see kind of more um, kind of unique approaches to learning and conservatives don't like them sometimes because um, they think that uh, they're not rigorous enough or uh, they don't they're not high enough standards
0: yes and also I, I think I mean obviously schools vary socioeconomically just based mm-hmm. on their g- geography so if, if you live in an upscale part of a city um the the a lot of parents are wealthy they're paying for extra mm-hmm. activities if there's fundraising the parents are generous because yeah. they have the money um then you go to the other side of the tracks and uh you've got uh, a lot of single parent families you've got recent immigrants you've got poor people they don't have the time or the money to yeah. really help out as much but testing kind of Punishes the school because those schools can't get the same exactly
1: they can't do that if you look at um, What standardized testing can actually predict it it only predicts two things it predicts how well kids write standardized tests That's it
0: (laughs) Um, So kids
1: that test well test well and the other thing it predicts is their parents income Um, And so it doesn't it's not actually a a good predictor of their success in college or their success in the job market standardized tests are just really there Um, And kids that are wealthier do better because they have the resources to get tutors to teach them how to test well. But that's not the same as being smart or understanding. Well, my thought
0: is that you should reward the schools that has the worst test results. because because those are schools that need your help and (laughs) instead you're threatening them in the States with shutting
1: down. Yeah, in a sense and what I examine in this book is that a lot of times, the metrics are telling us the opposite of what we think they're telling us. A lot of times the people who score best are actually the people who are the worst. Um, or in the case of tests, of tests, as you pointed out, those might be the schools that we need to invest in more because the ones Correct. that are doing good, they're gonna do good, do good no matter. And there's this really great study by these economists who looked at, and I quote this in the book, they looked at people who got accepted into Ivy League schools but right. they didn't go. They went They went to some other school for mm-hmm. some reason. And then they tracked their income uh, over the next, I don't know, however many decades. And they found that the difference in income for those people versus people who went to Ivy League schools was nothing. It was basically insignificant. Interesting. And the reason is, is because the income of graduates is largely determined by their social networks. Right. And not so much by their education. And it also just shows that getting an Ivy League education isn't that much better in terms of education and, and job outcomes than a state
0: school in the United States. Uh, I guess where it might really help is if you're a social climber, you don't come from quite that background, but you can mm-hmm. get into a school, you can make those connections exactly. and turn so, it
1: into. So in, in in this case too, they found
0: uh, for black and
1: Latino students who got into Ivy League schools, they did have a measurable increase in income right. because now they were able to make those social connections that they didn't have before. So for, traditionally Caucasian high-income earners, going to Ivy League schools is, is kind of useless. They should just save their money, I guess, and go somewhere else.
0: It, it, yes. Uh, one of the things about your book that I found interesting is you you tell quite a, some long stories to illustrate points, mm-hmm. which I, I thought made the book interesting. And... Um, you know, maybe it could have been a lot more compact if you just mm-hmm. like got to the point. Yeah. But I, I kind of liked the stories because there's so much human interest. So one of them is Janine Worrell-Breeden mm-hmm. and Common Core. So can yeah. you briefly describe what happened? And... Yeah,
1: so uh, Janine Worrell-Breeden uh, was a principal of a school in, um, I think it was in uh, in it was New York, I think it was in, in Harlem. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, um, she was a principal of the school for a few years. Um, Common Core kind of came into uh, the educational kind of world around that point right. point. and this was Common Core was a set of curriculum developed by a bunch of educators throughout the United States and then the Obama administration and a bunch of state legislatures all over started using that as a standardization that they can link funding to. Right. So if, if students performed well on these tests that were linked to this Common Core curriculum, mm-hmm. they would get funding. And so, so this is the race for the top program under right. Obama. Um, in her case, um, she was, you know, she, this is, a, this is an absolutely amazing educator, right? Someone who's, you know, like rallying your kids, just a lot of, giving a lot of, um, poor kids hope, you know, just doing right. great things. Um, but there's an incredible amount of pressure for that funding. Right. Um, and so what happened with uh, Janine Worrell-Breeden is that, um, a few days after one of her tests, um, she got on on the subway and she jumped in front of it and the reason is is because one of her coworkers basically reported that they were cheating they were cheating on the test um, there was other things going on in her life for sure so I we can't speculate right. that was the exact reason um, but it was a case kind of just showing how intense that pressure is for that funding and that um, in a lot of cases um, I have another long story about the Atlanta Public School scandal. Yeah, I was gonna. Yeah, I Atlanta Public school. But, but it's but it's it's really this this idea that you know sometimes these standards were just impossible for people to meet, and there was so much riding on it that the be, that pressure being so high, they took really desperate measures. And in the case of World Breeding, you know that was cheating, and it was it was cheating for a lot of people. And it's it's really unfortunate that that pressure is too high, and it's all for this number, right? This standardized test.
0: Yes, and I mean another way to look at it would be would be to look at the socioeconomic markers. Mm-hmm. You know, what's the average income, uh, how many families have a single parent versus yeah. two parents. Like uh, there's some pretty obvious markers yeah. and, and you would have to say um, the the schools with the worst uh, you know, the lower socioeconomic status need more help yeah and they also have less resources exactly so, and you, you know, punish them <laughs> you know, punishing you them, punish them for not being able
1: to achieve uh, some a test result that you would have in a, in a different school with a different socioeconomic economic um, kind of environment and you're kind of saying you have to meet that same
0: standard and it's, and it's yeah. it, it also struck me like we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Atlanta but it also struck me that if you suspect that other people are cheating you really don't have a choice yeah exactly right because you're basically gonna slit your own throat and cut off all funding yeah if you're gonna be super honest yeah or you play the game and then if it works you know you're trapped yeah you can't stop in
1: in in those situations it's like a prisoner's dilemma if you're the person who is honest you will get punished because right you, you know if you're a principal in a school that's not cheating in these situations. Your test results are going to look terrible, and you're going to get fired. Right. And so, and that's what happened in Atlanta. Is that everyone was cheating because everyone else was cheating? Yeah. And so it's no way out.
0: Give us a little bit more um, uh, uh, about what happened and how the whole thing fell apart. Yeah. So end. Atlanta was really the poster child of the of the cheating scandals uh,
1: that kind of rocked America and kind of in the two thousands. Um, it started. Um, with this woman Beverly Hall who came into uh, I think it was 1999-2000 she started there um, and she was really really focused on tests and basically told all the principals all the sub superintendents you know get your test results up get your test results up get your test results up if you don't you will lose your job if you do you're rewarded and so in the Atlanta public school system there were really really high powered incentives to get test results and funding was linked to that not just through uh, the state would give funding for that but mm-hmm. also she was able to use those test scores to go to foundations you know GE foundation, right. Bill and Melinda Gates foundation to get money for the education system by by demonstrating that they were always increasing the level of education. The problem was because there was the pressure was so high and this and and the standards so impossible to meet basically all the schools were cheating and the reason the whole scandal broke is because two journalists at the Atlanta Journal Constitution, um, what her name John Perry and uh, oh I forget her name, but um, they broke it because they were able to find some. They found some schools where they basically they wrote their tests in spring, did terribly, and they were allowed to rewrite right. them in fall, mm-hmm. and they went from being like eight hundredth or four hundredth in the state to like second. <laughs> and they and they kind of, they did a regression analysis on this and they said, like, this is like a one in two billion chance of this happening. And they basically right. said something's up. And yeah. that's sort how of the scandal broke and then there was investigations after that and, and all that. But that was it, was, it was pretty amazing.
0: Yeah. But, I mean, what is the status of Common Core in the U.S. now? Because, I mean, to me, the whole... Concept is broken, but there's still a lot of people wedded to this. got to measure something.
1: Yeah, and and, and Common Core saw seen a lot of resistance. Uh, places New York's probably the the most uh, resistant to it. A lot of uh, there's a lot of teachers uh, and a lot of students who are opting out. So there's a big opt out movement in the last couple of years right. um, about refusing to do these tests because they see the limitations of them and they see it as you know I can't speak for them, but. As like a really a reductionist way of looking at education that education is not just about memorizing and writing multiple choice tests.
0: Yeah, so. I mean on the other side, if you have no standards, mm-hmm. then you can you can end up with some schools which are poorly funded. They're in the ghetto. Mm-hmm. You know they they push kids out with a with a high school diploma, which yeah. doesn't mean anything, right? Yeah. Like it, if, if there's no standards, but I mean the old days you, you had like a school superintendent who s- sat in the classroom and listened to what was going on yeah, and and that was much more multifactorial because it could be that the, the teacher is a pretty good teacher but has a really bad manner and yells at the kids and stuff like exactly. that could be a problem. Or it could be that the teacher goes off on you know talks about everything except what they're supposed What's to be learning, important, yeah. right? Uh, kids are bored or whatever or you could go in and find kids who who maybe socioeconomically shouldn't be listening but are exactly you go, okay this I exactly. think something
1: wrong. Yeah. Right. I think that's a big theme of the book is that you a number is not a replacement for understanding something is you really need to understand the complete system and one number is is never going to give you that so you need to do those things you need to go into the schools you need to understand what are all the things that a school is trying to achieve and in, in some cases in these poor neighborhoods you know just giving kids a role model you know, they might not be able to do as well on the test, but giving them a role model and giving them st- stability in their lives is probably more important than anything else they can learn. I mean, all school. those
0: movies about teachers are always yeah. like that. Yeah, exactly, right. The <laughs> teacher goes into e- the exactly. ghetto and then gets these, these lost kids to actually do something. Mm-hmm. But I think in our unfair world where, you know, some kids are born with a silver spoon yeah. and others are, are born with everything against them, yeah. you, you know, if you can move them up... A little bit it gives them an opportunity to uh, in their lives they wouldn't have otherwise exactly I mean education
1: is a very important part of, of economic and social mobility and it's definitely something that you know us being in Canada uh, is something that's education is pretty strong across the board in Canada mm-hmm. there's almost every school is a good school there's no you know you go to university in Canada every school is good you know there's right. no schools that are terrible and those schools like I would say not good. Every school is great. Like, you go to Canada, no one really cares about what school you went to. Everyone just understands you have a good education.
0: Yeah, there, I mean, there's a slight edge of, of like, McMaster, U of yes. T, UBC, mm-hmm. and maybe, but um, it's not huge. It's not the same way yeah. as an Ivy League school versus a state school. And there's much the less... States. States. Private education and although yeah. private education could be good like some of the top universities in the u.s. Are private mm-hmm. th- There's also these sort of diploma mills where they get you in get you a big loan Yeah, which you're never gonna pay off. Yeah, and then give you a lousy education mm-hmm. um, And if you quit because you realize it's a scam then you still got your debt You still right? yeah. have that's, that's a whole nother. Yeah. issue You compared Japan to North America, and, and that's interesting because I think the North American feeling about Asian culture is it's very rigid, education is very rote. Mm-hmm. So what did you find uh, about the education systems, the classroom learning methods? Yeah,
1: so it was looking at, I looked at one study where they looked at kind of classroom instruction in, in those two systems. One that's very test heavy, which is the United States, and one that's less so, which is Japan, which is really strange because you would think the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, but they found, and I, I think another example was Ireland as well, and they found that uh, in situations where classrooms are very test heavy, the teachers really spend a lot of time restricting students um, to focus just on yes. what's on the test. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the other situations, they're trying to focus the kids on coming up with their own solutions for problems. Well, I mean, not their own right. solutions, coming up with a solution by themselves. Yes. Um, they focus, they allow students to branch out to um, areas of their own interest mm-hmm. and things like that. Whereas in uh, American schools and schools which are very focused on on the tests, they spend a lot more time teaching test taking abilities, which is really funny because nobody in their jobs has like a multiple choice answer for their project they're working on. There's no one that goes to, your boss doesn't go to you and say, you know, choose A, B, C or D. And I'll mark you on that. It's like you have to come up with a solution yourself. And so a lot of times these these tests just really are very limited in their ability to, to teach us what is important about education.
0: Yeah, and, and I guess that's a whole other thing with testing. Uh, like a, a classic test that's marked by the teacher might have an essay question. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to mark uh, by a machine, yeah. it's got to be multiple choice. But exactly. right? there's no other type of question right there's either true false or multiple which is a kind of multiple choice exactly so you have these um these and and there's only i mean there's there's a role for multiple choice but it's it's probably the lowest form of asking a question exactly it's 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 focused on memory it works for certain things it's focused on memorization
1: but it's focused like certain subjects do better at multiple choice math is is one um, right. but once you move away from math, it starts being, you know, uh, I looked at, that's part of the book. I looked at diploma exams in, in, in Alberta here, yep. um, in social studies. And I did my, I did an honors degree in political science and a minor in right. history. And I read these questions and I was like, this, none of this makes sense. <laughs> this is, this is such a dumbing down of something. Right. You know, they'd ask you this question and what, what you do is once you read the question, you realize what they're really asking is, did you memorize a sentence from your textbook? Because right. they'll, they'll ask some question, like, what's the definition or of, of some term? And you think, you know, as a, as a political science major, I'm like, well, that's something that we would debate. And political philosophers, philosophers would debate right. for But years. your textbook has And a your sentence. textbook said, here's the sentence, so you're expected to memorize the sentence. And so, in that sense, a lot of times, these types of test tests, they, they punish smarter students. Because the smarter students are going to be the ones who are like, who right. oh, do extra reading, get very excited, and do all these things. And when they they see a question like that, they're like, are they trying to trick me? And they spend more time on it. And they usually get it wrong because they probably have a better understanding of the subject matter. And they don't answer the dumbed-down answer. They right. answer the, the better answer.
0: Right, right. I uh, recently, for um, uh, reasons I don't need to explain, I took a... a course that you see which was a first-year university course in Greek and Roman mythology okay and it was a huge class biggest one I've I've ever been to I think 200 and there were there were no essays or anything else Mm -hmm. turned in during the term the the only thing that you were marked on was like three multiple choice exams oh really it totally multiple choice um, I think marked by a machine and and so it, it was like it was pretty obvious how it would work is you, you'd have who was the Greek goddess of printing, <laughs> yeah, whatever right? and then they'd have four starting with an A just to make it really difficult exactly. So 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 you've got a you've, you've got all these obscure gods and goddesses that you've got to put into your brain and I found like during the course it, the things that were interesting to me was like how um, the Greeks looked at say female sexuality yeah like a lot of the myths relate to sort of shock and horror at a woman who does something out of the okay right so you you could do a lot with that but you can't do it on a multiple choice yeah exactly and you find what they're trying to do
1: is is trick you but you're like if you think about it is that what we want to learn like if you get the name wrong and I one example is in a chemistry exam I saw for a diploma exam is they asked what's the chemical symbol for vanandium? and i was like who cares just like you if you're a chemist you should have a periodic table like on your desk you know what what job says you're not allowed to look information up right and i I actually had the opposite um experience when i was in university with one uh class in uh, east asian history and the professor was it was a essay uh, exam for both the midterm and the final and the professor's like I don't care if you spelled the emperor's name wrong I don't care if you get the dates wrong I want you, I want you to explain to me why you know the different dynasties came about right. I want you to explain why this you know I want you to understand that not if you spell some emperor's name wrong who cares that's not what I'm trying to teach you you it, know yeah, and so yeah. that's why multiple the, choice tests are the, the
0: most uh, useful knowledge of the periodic table I worked in telecom a long time and an old guy who worked at Motorola told me that he was sitting at his desk and this guy came around and said, we've designed this new satellite system. Mm-hmm. And he, he said, tell me something about it. He said, well it's got this many satellites and they're in this orbit and stuff like that. And he said, Iridium. <laughs> and, and the guy said, Iridium? <laughs> He said, well, that's the atomic number of that that many satellites. But the funny thing was, as plans went on, they changed the number of satellites. So the Iridium satellite network should have been called dysprosium. But (laughs) somehow, that was was not. That's uh, amazing. (laughs) That's the only (laughs) really useful thing. Yeah, super useful. (laughs) Um, You talked a little bit about the Khan Academy. Yeah. And their kind of philosophy of take tests until you pass, Yeah. which kind of says, well, that's stupid. Mm-hmm. So tell me why that's not a stupid idea. So uh, the Khan Academy is, is very different in terms of education
1: in that most places we focus, we, students learn something, they take a test and no matter how they do well, how well they do on the test, they move on to the next, next right. subject, whether they understand the material or not. Right. The problem with that is that we're really f- that focus is on ranking students by saying yeah. some students are good, some students are worse. Right. And the whole purpose is just to rank them. Mm-hmm. But the Khan Academy took a different angle and said, why don't we focus on making every student understand every subject in a, like a master level? Right. And so what they do instead is when they, when they learn something like arithmetic, they write an exam and you're not allowed to learn division or long division or geometry until you've mastered arithmetic like you have to right. know it backwards and forwards because especially in math math and science and things like that they stack right you need to know arithmetic to get geometry yes. you need to know you know to get algebra you need to know both those things right. you know you need you, know, you need to know you need to know algebra to get geometry right. and so their philosophy is that what's the point of an education system where everybody's you know getting 70% 60% So like they should master everything
0: to, right yeah. to put this in context is mm-hmm. Khan Academy is like an after school extra
1: yeah, thing, like well, it's, it started off as uh, YouTube tutorials that this guy was mm-hmm. teaching his cousin. Um, it grew into an online, you can actually, anybody can sign up for Khan Academy. It's free. You can just go and learn the curriculum yourself. They've applied it in a few places, like full, fully in, in schools. Um, mm-hmm. It also, people use it as like an additional teaching tool, tool on top of traditional school. Um, oh, okay. But the, but the concept of mastery learning is something that Salman Khan is, is, was really trying to reinvigorate. And it, it, I think it's, I mean, I'm a big fan of it, I, the last chapter of my book is is on it,
0: so it's kind of like the but way to end it, but, yeah. th- this This assembly line method of, mm-hmm. of teaching where all children advance at the same s- speed, obviously, mm-hmm. even if you had, even if you erased all socioeconomic differences, you still have, quote, slow, yeah. and you have fast yeah. kids. And But we insist in schools that they all progress yeah. at the same speed.
1: Yeah, and it's not about slow or fast kids. It's that everyone learns everything at a different pace, right? Yeah. Like one kid might struggle at uh, doing exponentials, and then they'll get to trigonometry, and they're totally fine, or vice versa. And so this idea that everyone has to learn everything at the standard rate means that everyone's learning everything partially, right. not everyone's mastering. And so with the Khan Academy, they said, let's well, not focus on the time let's focus on the completeness of their learning and they found out when they actually went to schools and said let's start again with this with this you know with they took some grade sixes and they taught them Khan academy some of them did grade six curriculum some of them started back at grade one mm-hmm. and the ones that started back at grade one within a couple of months they had surpassed the other group because they filled all the holes right they, they went back and to say hey do you fully understand long division do you fully understand algebra
0: but it also seems kind of intense because you have a teacher with 30 kids, mm-hmm. and one of those kids never got division, mm-hmm. and you rely on the fact that the yeah. class understands division. Like, how does that teacher yeah. handle that situation?
1: Yeah, so in, in, in those situations, there's a lot more s- self-directed. Like, kids are doing a lot of... And and, right. and teachers are stepping in to help where they're needed. Mm. Whereas... And, and you can see this, this is the problem with traditional schooling, is that you will have kids who have these gaps, and the teacher's trying to teach, you know, whatever level they are at, and they actually find that they're, they're having to teach these students things from three grades ago because right. they didn't fully get it, and that's not a good use of their time. So really, they, you should be focusing on the things that the students really do need to learn then, um, and, and that's why the, this idea of mastery learning kind of flipped the whole metric on its head.
0: Right. One of the complaints I heard from professors when I was hanging around... Um, the University of Calgary was that nobody can write a decent essay, mm-hmm. but it's like this emphasis on testing is is not going to make it better. Yeah,
1: well, think about there's one quote from a, a, a educational um, critic saying, you know, writing, uh, you know, a lot of grades will tell you, or a lot of tests will tell you, uh, teach you on, um, you know, the right use of a comma or definition of a word, but not whether or not not you're writing actually expresses coherent thought hmm. right and that's why these these metrics really fall short in, in teach in testing what's actually important right, right. And, and and sometimes right. that is do you have a coherent argument not did you meet these whatever criteria you made up did you use this word this many times is it 800 you know it's like the read an essay that's 800 words it's like well is the 800 words the goal or is the coherent argument the goal?
0: Yes, mm-hmm. uh, I was looking at some of my old university essays a while a while back and there was a comment on it, like it was supposed to be 1,500 words and it was like 3,000, it it's like, <laughs> this is too many words. <laughs> yeah. It was like, I actually thought it was a, a good essay, but, um, so let's move away from education yeah. for a while. I don't want to spend all our time on education, um, so, you covered a lot of different things. Healthcare is one you spent some time on. Mm-hmm. So here, maybe it's not measuring, but fee for service is kind of like, I'm rewarding you you know, a certain amount for different things that you do, yep. right? So I'm going to mm-hmm. break medicine down into 3,000 different codes and, codes and yeah. units. And then you do one of those things and you get paid. Yeah, right so that's right. what's wrong with that
1: <laughs> so if you think about so this is in in Canada at least fee for service is kind of the dominant way we pay you, at least primary health uh, doctors there's there's different i, I think the as US well. is the US same US right yeah insurance companies with insurance you, you got to fill in a box and they decide yeah, and where they, they're going to pay you right? exactly and and different types of procedures cost different things but if you really think about it especially from a primary health, health perspective like this is your family doctor mm-hmm. if you pay your doctor every time you go to see them you basically reward them for having sick patients. Right. Because the sicker you are, the more they're gonna to want to see you. Right. Um, and, the, and there's not really an incentive for them to focus on making you healthier because if you're healthy you don't have to go in as much. The other problem with it is it makes it very inefficient for them and for you. Because the doctor is always trying to find ways to bill for something. So a good example is in Alberta. Um, when they get test results Doctors are paid to tell you the test results in person, they're not paid to tell you over the phone. So they call you in. And so people take time off work, they get stressed out, they go, they wait in the waiting room, and you go in and the doctor opens the door and says, guess what, your test results are negative, everything's good, and you just wasted two hours of your day. Right. But that's how they're paid. And And so
0: he goes, ka-ching, he gets
1: it. (laughs) Exactly. So I I, I interviewed a bunch of doctors at a clinic that do something different, they use something called a blended capitation model where they're paid per patient per year based on age and gender they don't tell you test results in person they, f- they phone you up right because right. it's it's more efficient for them it's more cost effective for them and it's better for you like you don't have to yep. go in for negative test results and because of the way they're paid the doctors actually focus on the complex patients the things that they're needed right. to be there for not just not just the oh hey hi how you doing i'm leaving now we can bill right, right? but
0: i think you also mentioned that that there's a downside to that too. Because mm-hmm. if I had a system like that, it's like, oh, here I've got a diabetic patient with heart disease. Yeah. If I can get rid of this person, exactly. I'm, I'm gonna substitute them for some Hell 20-year-old yeah. runner who might, might have a sore yeah. knee once in a while. And there's, so the devil's in the
1: details with capitation systems. Mm. So you wanna avoid something called cream skimming. And this is with all metrics. Cream skimming is when you take all the good stuff and you right. measure yourself on that and you try to get rid of all the bad stuff. You you know, you, you right. skim just the cream. And so, for instance, in Ontario, they've had problems with this because they didn't do a lot of thought into like what the different uh, healthcare needs of different types of patients were. Right. So doctors were opening up, you know, these um, blended capitation uh, clinics in like really, really high wealth areas because right. that's where you don't have to spend a lot of money. The people are all healthy. And so right. it's, 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 and, and those have to,
0: people are probably voluntarily going to things that aren't covered. Exactly, like acupuncture, they're and going, massage, they're going and to stuff the gym. They're,
1: they're doing all those things. Right. And so, capitation models—you really have to account for number one. You don't want to have cream skimming, um, and you. And so, in Calgary, this clinic—they report every single patient who who declines to join them. Right. Um, and they're also based. Their costs are based on the same socioeconomic and geographic area of other health clinics in their area. Yeah, so yeah. if you took their same model and took it to a poor area of the city, in, in, in the case of Calgary, Greater Forest Lawn, Right. that's not fair, because those doctors are providing, have to provide higher levels of care, because right. they have clients who have much more complex issues, mm-hmm. so you can't, this, it's not a broad
0: brush system, uh, right. you have to be very careful about it, so. But I mean, it's still, it's still a metrics-based system, yes. right? yeah. It's hard to see how you could have a modern medical system that completely got away from any metrics you, you have right? to use metrics in some somebody's ways. gotta get paid yeah you have to be paid some
1: ways you can do salary that works in some situations you can do like fee-for-service works for things like surgeons right like you know surgeons they're trying to do the most amount of surgeries the most effectively but you have to be careful too right because here's an example in New York uh, they started rating doctors on the success rates of their right. surgeries and so what happened was the senior surgeons started to refuse to do the complex surgeries because they knew that their their rates would go down, their successful right. rates would go down, go down. So this is the same thing as cream skimming, right? Like they're, they're choosing just the good ones. So those are things you have to protect against when okay. you design these, these metrics.
0: Right, right. I, I can, I can see that. Like you're mm-hmm. going to pick patients that you're exactly pretty damn sure it's going to be successful. Yeah. And if somebody comes into you with something complicated that you might have done in the past, you're just gonna say no, yeah. risk to my income is too high. Yeah, Let's I say, think this is the situation that a lot
1: of uh, sales departments go through is they'll reward their salespeople on the the number of sales they have in clients, but that's because they just give the good clients and the good accounts to the salespeople who are already good and don't give them to like junior. Right. But you don't know if that's actually because they're better salesmen or just because right. they've been there longer. And so that salesperson is rewarded simply for just
0: to those who Being have... around. They're, just, be they're given. just given the
1: easy things. So it's important to really... Okay. Correct a, for that.
0: Another... Um, another thing that I found interesting... Okay. Safety of a highway. Yeah. This, this is really good. People complain that there's certain intersections with too many accidents, mm-hmm. whatever. So we want to come up with some metrics to measure highways and make them safer so what are yeah. some of the pitfalls we could get into there yeah
1: so I, I use this in the book as an example of what's called the logic model and so with with any activity you can measure what's kind of like four different things the inputs so those are the resources you put into something the uh, activities those are the things that you are doing mm-hmm. the outputs those are the things you achieve and then there's the outcomes and that's the outcomes of the things you actually want to have happen so in the case of a highway safety situation resources would be like how many patrol officers do you have? Um, you know, how much money do you spend on the problem? Right. Uh, the activities are like, how many tickets did you give out? How many, you know, uh, cars did you stop or whatever? Right. Um, the outputs would be things like, you know, how did the speed of the highway like the average speed decrease? But right. The outcomes is like, did we have less collisions? Did right. we have Number less people die? Right. And so a lot of times, uh, organizations will focus on activities inputs or outputs, because those right. are easy to measure. Right. You can always measure how much the budget is. You can always measure how many you know talks you gave or how many reports you printed or whatever. Right. Outcomes are hard, because outcomes a lot of times are very complex, and they're very difficult for you to measure. And so the problem is, is that we end up measuring these other things, and a lot of times we just reward ourselves for inefficiency. Because we're yes. just saying, oh, look at how much money we put into this problem. And you're like, well, did you solve the problem? well uh, that's too hard right so it's
0: yeah I mean they, they might be giving tickets preferentially to places that are more convenient to get to mm-hmm. because you can do your shift and then you can go home and there's not a big drive But yeah. there may be problems in a place that's less easy. easy to to get to also like hopefully with things like fatal traffic accidents there aren't a lot So Mm -hmm. you might get numbers, but you, you know, even if nothing changes, Mm -hmm. you might have one fatality on the stretch of road this year and then six next year because you have a bad accident and then zero the next year. And how do you derive from that whether the highway is getting safer or more dangerous?
1: Yeah, well, this is, this is a really good question because it kind of speaks to um, a kind of broad topic in the book is that, you know, what you need to measure is, often the things that lead to, to causes so traffic accidents are a good example is that most people when they're driving will make a lot of mistakes a lot right. of little things here they forget that they, what you know all, like you forget for, to signal forget to, to signal whatever right. uh, and so the chance of something happening is low but the consequences are extreme right someone dies mm-hmm. right that's that's very high and so what you need to focus on is actually improving those behaviors and so what police should be measuring actually is not the number of fatalities they should be be measuring and not the police you should actually get a civilian organization to go out and measure how many close calls how many people didn't yield to pedestrians because those are the things that cause accidents right you know how often are people tailgating on the highway that's right that's
0: one of the things you need to measure you don't give need to give out tickets you you might want to measure it and then have an intervention of some kind. Exactly. And then see if you. It doesn't ha- it. exactly. It doesn't have to be a ticket.
1: It could be uh, a crosswalk. It could be better road design. It could be better right. driver education. It could be. It's one of these things that, you know, when it comes to things like road safety, road safety is the job of a lot of different people. It's mm-hmm. the police. It's the transportation engineers. It's the people teaching us how to drive. All those things, come together to make safe roads. And we can't just say, well, we gave out a thousand tickets this year. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the police
0: would say if we give out more tickets, we'll have safer drivers. Uh, other people might say we should have more advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, y- you know, there there might be um, y- you know, a lot of different ways to try to change things. Yeah. And, and I, I guess people would need to look into... It, I mean, sometimes I think people have tunnel vision. It's like, we give out tickets, so we're going to do more of that. And we'll yeah. have a good outcome. Yeah,
1: a lot of it too. And this is me the trend, as the urban planner. A lot of it is road design. Like road design is, has probably the biggest impact on, on safety. Um, and that's just because road design changes the ways that drivers perceive the road and how they right. drive. And that's what you really want to change you want to change driver behavior through design
0: mm-hmm. yeah uh, okay yeah well spoken like a designer I, <laughs> yeah i don't think a policeman would tell me this no no t- A
1: policeman will say give <laughs> him as many tickets as he possibly can
0: okay well let's talk about um management Mm-hmm. i had a brief career as a as a project manager and i yeah you know one of the things that bothered me is like i i felt that north american management was management by numbers yes it's like rate your employees on on six yeah uh vectors from one to ten yeah. average the numbers and then give out the puny little raise. yeah you know preferentially to those Based who get higher numbers. numbers so i mean you you talk you had some interesting yeah. examples like uh, Levi came up with a wonderful yeah. motivational scheme that backfired. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah.
1: Um, and if I was to say, if I was to like summarize the book for, for, there's a different ways you can summarize the book. But one of the books, one of the ways I can summarize the book is that this is a criticism of modern management practices in the right. sense that it's, it is management by numbers. Mm-hmm. And this is a book showing that that's very misguided and wrong. Right. But let's talk about Levi. So Levi, this is, I think in the 90s, they had this compensation scheme, and they said it was this big announcement. They had all these parties, and then the uh, the CEO, um, someone Haas, I think his name was, he said that every employee will get a full year's salary as bonus if they hit a certain revenue target. Right. Everyone was so excited. It was great. It was like parties everywhere. All the all the employees were doing, you know, just so excited. Morale was just so high. And then the first quarter sales numbers came back, and they had, and they had. Decreased, and they right. decreased for a bunch of reasons. They had competition from Calvin Klein um, on the like the high end, and then like I forget which other companies on the low end. Um, but what happened is that very quickly, within a couple quarters, the employees saw that goal as unachievable, right? And morale tanked, right? And it, and it just and things got worse and worse and worse, and they were closing factory after factory after factory. Um, and this is one of those things to to show you that. If you set a goal, if that goal is unachievable, it's actually demotivating. Right. It's the opposite. So this is kind of like the realistic goal. and <laughs> The goals part of the metrics is that um, metrics... And, and there's another part of the book that talks about the motivation of metrics and how it's misguided. But mm-hmm. in one way, when you make that goal and you, and it's so far out of reach, you're it's, you're going to have the opposite effect on on morale.
0: Right. Yeah. Y- you also talked about some... Uh, uh, thing where they were emphasizing perfect attendance, and oh, yeah. you found that it increased the number of people with perfect attendance. But those yeah. who missed a day realized that they weren't going to get the reward, so then they had more days off. Yeah, right. Because why bother? I yeah. don't get my reward So, so screw this it.
1: exactly this is this is the the fundamental flaw of metrics is that metrics measure you on one on one thing. Right. It's it's what we call uh reducing dimensionality. So any job has a bunch of different dimensions to it. You know, you might do be writing reports, you might be working with coworkers, you might you know, all kinds of aspects. Um but when you use metrics, you really narrow that focus. And so in this example in the laundry experiment, these economists found this this uh this laundry plant where they, you know, they clean and press uniforms and things mm. like that. And they were having issues with people coming in late or just not coming in at all. Right. And so they said, okay, if you get perfect attendance in a month, never late, always always there, we'll enter you into a draw, we'll put your name up on the board, and you can get you know you can win a gift card or something. Right. And so for the people who were bad at attendance, their attendance went up because they wanted to win this award. Right. But for the people who previously were very good at, at attendance and never were late, the moment they were late one day. For the rest of the month, their chances of being late again or missing a day went up five times. Wow. Five times higher. And the reason is, is because once they... This is about motivation theory. So basically, before they had uh, the intrinsic motivation to come to work, right. they believed it as just intrinsically as a person, I'm a person who shows up to work on time, mm-hmm. I'm not late, that's a value I have. And then there's the extrinsic motivation, which is you get a, a reward for something, right? right? And so. In motivation theory and psychology, um, was explained by this man, this man named uh, uh, Desi and and basically he did all these experiments to show that once you insert extrinsic motivation for something, you like take away the intrinsic motivation. People lose it, and right. so so what that's what happened in this laundry plant is that once they were given that reward system, their intrinsic motivation for showing up for work disappeared. Disappeared, and what's even more interesting. Is that the economists measured the people doing the study? They measured everyone else, not just on their attendance, but on their productivity and everything else in the factory. So, how quickly they folded and sorted laundry, how quickly they pressed things, all these things. Productivity across the board dropped 10% oh. once they put this system in, and that's really important because so many companies put these things in right. because they think, oh, we're gonna we're gonna increase productivity, but they don't. They undermine productivity because they basically narrow your focus so much that everybody who's doing all those things for good reasons they say, "Well, why am I doing this anymore?
0: All they care about is attendance or all they care about uh, yes. is that." And a thing that I thought about was that if you were a manager who wasn't management by numbers, you you might say, "Okay, I've got a chart in front of me and mm-hmm. I have, you know, 10 employees with perfect attendance." Mm-hmm. So maybe I should go to them and thank them for, yeah. you know, whatever, to motivate them, help their motivation to recognize it. And I've got four with bad attendance, maybe I should figure out what's going on. Yeah, You know, because they might have valid reasons for being late, like mm-hmm. they might have family issues, yeah. right? Which maybe you could understand and you still want to keep them as an employee, maybe yeah. some way you could help them or something. But to understand it as opposed to say, okay, we're going to punish you for. <laughs> yeah. And it might not be possible for them to have perfect attendance to always be on time they might not have money for a good car and it's breaking down or they might travel a route that has bad traffic or something like that i
1: i think in general one of the myths of just management in general is that companies need to find ways to motivate employees Um, i think in general people want to do a good job they want to be proud of what they do your right. job as a manager is to not demotivate them. It's to, <laughs> to not beat them down, right? And that's what happens is in these situations, people felt like I'm being punished. And especially the people who are doing good at their job, they're like, I'm being punished for doing a good job. This makes no sense. And they just yeah. then They just stop working as hard.
0: Yes. Well, we've we've got about five minutes left. Okay. So I, I'd just like to give you an opportunity to, you know, say... Uh, you know cover some issue that you think is really yeah. important in your book that we haven't talked about? Yeah, for or. sure.
1: I think the best way to summarize it is, this, is there's this little parable uh, and I, it's, it's called this is called the lamppost problem so I have a, a whole chapter in the book about the lamppost problem. Mm-hmm. So imagine there's a police officer walking down the road at night and he turns this corner and he sees somebody uh, underneath a street light kind of fumbling around so he walks up to them, gets he gets closer he sees that this person is obviously drunk Mm-hmm. Um, and so he goes up to the person and says, hey, hey sir, can I help you? And and the guy's like, Yeah, I lost my keys and so the officer's being a good you know, being a good officer says, Yeah, okay, well I'll help you I'll help you look for your keys. So looks around for a while, a few minutes passing, looks everywhere, and pretty soon it becomes pretty evident that his keys aren't there. <laughs> yeah. So he tells the guy, Hey, are you are you absolutely certain that you lost your keys under the light here? And uh, the guy's like, Well no, actually I lost him back in the woods and the police officer's like you know shaking his head he's like well then why are we looking here and the guy's like well this is where the light is <laughs> yes. and i i love that i love that joke because we all laugh at it but that guy is us right all of us the ones we're always the ones saying i need a number on this like I why, need to get the metric. why are
0: we measuring this number it doesn't really reflect reality well, we don't have a better number and we have to measure something. And if we didn't measure something, we'd actually have to think about what we were doing. Exactly. And, and people,
1: and a lot of times, uh, I think people use numbers not as a way to better understand something. They use numbers as a way to hide the fact that they don't understand something and, and they're afraid to try to understand it. And they're afraid to go out into the woods in the dark and look for their keys uh, yeah
0: yeah I think that uh, also we feel that anything based on numbers is more scientific it's better it's better, it's always just, better right? just better it's it's like everything modern is is better and you know we can laugh at everything they did in the 1800s but you know people were just as smart and innately back then and mm-hmm. there's maybe things they knew that we've forgotten yeah. I mean it's just like indigenous lore right like mm-hmm. when I moved to Canada and went winter camping for the first time i the thought crossed my head is like, how did native people survive mm-hmm. all winter out here? yeah, like I knew a lot of stuff that's completely useless when yeah. you're out numbers <laughs> aren't, my numbers are
1: everything right there's there's <laughs> yes. different ways of knowing and different thing and and it's not just qualitative versus quantitative is that there's a lot of things that we know and understand, and it's not because we can quantify them it's yes. because there's there's other ways of knowing, and it's really important that we recognize that
0: yeah yeah i I think with um. When in my short career as a manager, I knew who were my better employees. I knew what the problems were. All my employees had problems just like I had problems and I kind of knew for each one which were the problems and I could easily rank them. I didn't need to mm-hmm. do a, run a bunch of numbers. Well, you, would, to you numbers. would choose the numbers and you'd choose the numbers to. Well, I did that. Right? Exactly. <laughs> I would say, oh, well, this guy's supposed to come out on top. So I've got to change the numbers. Yeah. Well, it's
1: funny because people always pretend, and, and that's one of the themes of the book, people pretend numbers are objective, but they're not. Because choosing what to measure, measure yes. that's a subjective decision. And so when people say it's objective, you, gotta be, you always have to say, well, no, because the measurement you've chosen isn't objective. And yes. You can't avoid that. You can never avoid that subject, subjective decision.
0: Well, um, I think that bad data is kind of an antidote to running to measure something just because you want to measure something. Yeah. Um, and I decided I it a, made more sense uh, to have feedback at the read. end of the I show. Like I, like the I know you probably it. want mm-hmm. to get right to the meat of the show, um, the interview. And, and those so of you just, who like, don't listen regularly might not be so and, yeah, interested well, for in for having conversations this a great through talk. this feedback awesome. with my oh, listeners. Okay. So let me know what you think about this change or anything else about the show really. Don't be shy. Mike on Twitter wrote and said, David I love your show The guests' topics, skepticism, and questions you explore are a rarity. Thank you. I am currently going through years of the infectious myth, about five a day while I work. I look forward to reading your book when it's available for purchase. God bless, Mike. Now, Mike did the right thing, and he included his address, even though it was just a tweet. And a bookmark is now on its way through the Postal Service to Mike. So, good job there. Not everybody remembers to put their address in, but it, it actually does work. An email from Brian. Thanks, David. Scientific thinking often tends towards myth. I sigh at that. Mythic narrative serves a purpose for the mind that acts as if something was true within the new frame of a person's beliefs. You are correct in uncovering self-contradiction as evidence of false basis from which to think. While we feel protected from our fears and self-responsibility for their cause, by priesthoods of presumed knowledge and authority, few will challenge or even think to question the frame of narrative identity or worldview that proceeds from such judgments and values. No more will the parent or institution that is supposed to know, lead, or control allow its role to be undermined by its own failures. It becomes too big to fail. That this can be leveraged is well studied and acted upon by manipulators who apply scientific myths to social engineering, which operate as the exploiting, farming, and discarding of others in the pursuit of possession and control. It's never really about profits, but of protected revenue streams. This fusion of the mercantile with the political is the core corruption that can and does affect a broad spectrum control in terms of weaponizing and marketizing not just science in its direction, but thought itself as the idea of narrative control enforced consensus, and the media control by which to frame the narrative. In other words, the news of the world paused for the coronavirus to fill the space with propaganda. He quotes Alan Bullock in a book, Hitler and Stalin, Parallel Lives. The true object of propaganda is neither to convince nor to persuade, but to produce a uniform pattern of public utterance in which the first trace of unorthodox thought immediately reveals itself as a jarring dissonance. If, as I believe until convinced otherwise, toxicology, malnutrition and emotional strain of shock and or depletion from chronic shocks is the basis of sicknesses assigned to infectious viruses that are in fact the body's function in either reenacting or rebalancing the conflict, then we have evolved a defense of conflict suppression and evasion that only works as a temporary expedient but has become de facto a way of persisting in conflicted identity whilst flagging the consequence of fear, pain, loss, and debt away from self to others, to evils of the past, to malign agencies such as a virus, and to bolster the denial and projectionist defense against the conflict coming back at us, or worse, coming up to relive with again with us. I feel that science left reason when it sought to make data reality, and it claimed an exclusive right of interpretation of the data, the narrative. Instead of conspiracy, for the most part, it is corrupted and deceived self-interest that automatically aligns against anything that would expose, illuminate, and thus threaten invested illusions of control. Undoing insanity is not going to occur from within the frame of its already conflicted thinking. It must be the result of a fresh perspective, rather than standing in the shadows of giant mistakes. I appreciate your writing for not engaging in moral outrage or attempts to persuade, This reveals quality in you that I call love of truth. I want to uncover more from those who have discovered a different biology to the evil virus. I just found Fear of the Invisible by Janine Roberts. If you have any recommendations and are willing to share them, I'd be grateful. Some of the books I'd recommend are Inventing the AIDS Virus by Peter Duesberg. Although it doesn't uh, question the existence of the virus, it does question whether it's pathogenic, whether it causes disease. Uh, Jim West's online work on polio and West Nile virus, uh, from which Janine Roberts took a lot, is, uh, is really good, although it's a little tough to dig through it. The book When AIDS Began by Michelle Cochran describes the built-in bias uh, that gay men were diseased in the early days of AIDS in San Francisco. The perception that gay men were diseased led to preferential diagnosis of them, and uh, ignoring similar symptoms in people not seen as gay. Poison by Prescription, the AZT story, is free online now. Written by John Lauritsen, it describes the fraudulent approval of the first AIDS drug, AZT, and the damage this drug did to gay men, to hemophiliacs, to IV drug users, and so on. Ribivarin used during the SARS epidemic, and ganciclovir being used during, for the new coronavirus are similar drugs known as nucleoside analogs. Thank you for listening to episode 245 of The Infectious Myth. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion for a future guest, please email me at david.crow@theinfectiousmyth.com. at theinfectiousmyth.com, like us at facebook.com theinfectiousmyth, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Infectious Myth. Commit the monthly donations of any amount to Infectious Myth on Patreon.com or Liberapay.com. Until next week, thank you and goodbye.